0: If you're able, I invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's word. It is, we'll be looking at Esther chapter 4, our sermon text. It's also printed there for you in the bulletin. And let us give our careful attention, for this is the word of the Lord. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and when he cried out, cried out with a loud and bitter cry, He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called to Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what to learn what this was, and why this was. Hathig went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go into the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathig went out and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days." And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This has been the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Please be seated. Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights activist, once said the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in times of convenience and comfort, but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. And it's so true that oftentimes, oftentimes we have what we think as defining moments in difficult times of our seasons. Difficult seasons can serve as a mirror to our hearts that show us really where our hope lies, what we're truly looking for, for assurance. But they also have a way of exposing what type of people and, and characters we are. These, these seasons can rise to the surface are certain virtues and vices that we have in each of our lives. And oftentimes, these seasons of what we will do, at kind of a fork in the road when we're faced in difficult circumstances, serve as defining moments that can set the course for the rest of our lives. We see that Esther today, Queen Esther in this chapter, this is what we might call Esther's defining moment. She's put in a hard place and she has to make a decision. She has to make a choice one way or the other that will set the trajectory for the rest of her life and others. We'll look at how this unfolds in three points. We'll look at first righteous lamenting. We'll then look at the request that's made by Mordecai and then finally Esther's response. So righteous lament, request, and response but because we're jumping in chapter 4 we're starting this 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 sermon kind of in the middle i'd like to just do a brief recap to set the scene of what's happened up to this point and and what's happened before this chapter so the book opens highlighting king artaxerxes and his persian empire it really shows he, it shows his his glory his splendor his power the sheer influence of his kingdom of how far it expands geographically And this is particularly highlighted in the big party that he throws. There's a lot of extravagance of food and clothing and all these things showing the vast wealthness that this king has. Yet there's a great irony that happens in the first chapter. And despite having all this power, having this great kingdom, when he calls Queen Vashti, his wife, to come in, she refuses. And so despite having all this power and prowess, the queen he can't even control within his own house. And this enrages the king and his men, so much so that they create a decree that, that writes out Queen Vashti, that removes her from her position of influence. And so looking for a new queen, we're introduced then to the two main characters of the book, Mordecai and Esther, who are two Jewish people living in Persia. And we learn that they are those who were, when, when Israel was led into captivity, they are those who are living in this city. And we see that in the Lord's providence that Esther is one of the women that's chosen in consideration for the queenship and eventually rises to the throne. But she has not yet revealed that she is a Jew. It's all in the Lord's providence that she's ascended to this place. And the next thing we happen, shortly after her ascent, we see that Haman, the real enemy of the Jewish people, in particular Mordecai in this story, cunningly and connivingly and wickedly plots against the Jewish people and convinces the king to sign a decree that will lead to the wiping out, to the annihilation of the Jewish people. And then we come to chapter 4, which is the response to that decree. It comes right off the heels of chapter 3. And we learn that when Mordecai finds out about this, Sorry. So first, looking at the righteous lament in the first point. So we learn that Mordecai has heard about this decree. We'll unpack this in more detail. But what's clear from chapter 2 is that one of Mordecai's skills is that he's very good at keeping his ear to the ground. He's very good at gathering intel and data, and he's able to find things out very quickly and effectively. We see this in chapter 2 with the the king. There's a plot to assassinate the king, and Mordecai hears about this and is able to relay the information to people in time to stop this assassination attempt. And so too here, we'll see in greater detail later in the chapter, but Mordecai has heard about this. He's he's just heard the decree that there's going to be a destruction of his people. And if you look in chapter 3 and verse 13, It talks about kind of the depth and the the real extravagance of this decree. I think this really gives us an insight into the weight of what Mordecai would have felt. It uses words like, There's an instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate, not just Mordecai and the men, but all Jews, young and old, women and children. And so in 12 months, this decree is going to come forth and Mordecai hearing about this for the first time is distraught. He's lamenting, he's wrecked. We see that in detail, they show that he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and went outside the midst of the city. Now, on your... If you're driving home on the way from church and you saw someone on the sidewalk who had their, their, their clothes torn and they had dust on their head, we would likely be very concerned and confused about why they're dressed that way. But this was, a very common, this was a very common thing in the ancient Near East and in this culture. This really is a way for Mordecai to show a visibleness to his lamenting and his sadness. Though he's internally sad, this is a way that his external is reflective of how he feels internally. But this is not just kind of a superficial sadness. There's also He's also walking around the city, so anyone who sees him will know that he's in a state of mourning. And finally, the text shows us the depth of his mourning and lamenting as well. It says that he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. This is, this is not like a one-hour sob session, but this is really points to the depth of his lament. There's a bitterness to this. This really reaches to the deepest parts of his heart. And there's an agony and a grief that he feels about the weight of this decree being sent forth. And so we're following, we're following Mordecai in his mourning, and we see that he comes to the king's gate. But then there becomes a problem. He's, he's helpless to do anything on his own. He has no power over revoking this decree or making sure this decree doesn't go forth. But he knows that Esther might, and particularly the king might as well. And so he's trying to reach the king. But we see the problem with the Persian custom in verse 2. Because Mordecai is wearing his sackcloth, he's not allowed to go into the king's gate. He's not allowed to enter these things. It's not spelled out in detail why this is, why this is the law that it is. There has been one commentator I think helpfully suggests that in looking at chapter one, all the palaces is extravagant and joy and feasting and happiness. And so likely the Persians wanted the palace to stay in that type of atmosphere. They didn't want it to be a place of sadness and mourning and thinking about sad things. They wanted it to just be a place of pure happiness. And we see in Nehemiah 2 that he, as the cupbearer, is worried as he goes into the king's presence with mourning. There was a fear about this thing. There was known that in this culture and time that sadness and lamenting was not something that was accepted in the palace. And so we we see, excuse me, he's, he's conflicting because he's not able to go in the king, yet he's still lamenting and has the problem of the decree going forth. It's not only Mordecai, that is lamenting, but it's also all the Jewish people in the city as well. Verse 3 shows us that in every providence that, that the king's command has gone forth, that the Jews are also following suit with Mordecai as well. He mentions that there's great mourning amongst them. There's fasting, there's weeping, lamenting. And there are many who similarly dress like Mordecai. They put on sackcloth and ashes fasting was used for a couple different things. It could be used in times of repentance, where there was a great sin, you would fast and go before the Lord in times of prayer and confession. But I think likely here, it's, it's another thing. It's them invoking God's favor and mercy in times of dependence. They, we don't have... Reason to think that this decree has gone forth because they've been sinful, but it's due to the injustice and wickedness of Haman. And so what we see here is kind of a a picture of a godly community living in exile, yet fasting and praying before their God, asking for God's favor upon them in the midst of persecution. Finally, Esther, Esther has not yet understood what has happened in the decree. Even though she is the queen and she lives in the same palace with Artaxerxes, It has not yet been known to her that her people have been decreed for destruction. She finds out in hearing about that her her assistants have seen that not only Mordecai, but all the Jewish people in the city are mourning. And so they get wind of this and report this to Esther. And we see that she's deeply distressed. She doesn't know what's going on yet. But seeing all these things, seeing that her people are in distress, she knows that something is wrong. And so the person she's closest with would be her cousin, her family member, Mordecai. So she seeks to send him clothes to take off his clothes that he might come in and talk with her. Yet perhaps here we see the depth and the true despair. Not despair, we see the true depression of Mordecai here. She sends garments to him, but he refuses to take them. He refuses to let his external attire be inaccurate to how he feels internally, This really is a picture of inconsolable grief and sadness that he refuses to be comforted, that he refuses to take the clothes that Esther has sent him here. I've entitled this point Righteous Lamenting because I think this is a a picture of what it looks like to godly lament when we look at not only what what he's lamenting but how he's lamenting. And I think as we think about this as as Westerners, even reading these first four verses, we hear things about sackcloth and fasting and mourning and weeping. And these things can make us a little uncomfortable, particularly in Western culture. We don't really lament well. We prefer to live as the Persians, to live as people who want to think about happiness and self-fulfillment and joy and all these things. And yet God's picture God's word is full of this picture of when godly people face terrible things that they come honestly and openly before the Lord. Mordecai is just one example in God's word that is full of people lamenting. And I hope that in bringing attention to this that Mordecai will encourage us not to be ashamed or hide from our grief and sadness, but it will encourage us in our prayer life, knowing that we have a God who has called us and invited us to be honest in his presence, to lay our souls bare before him in prayer when we are sad, when we lament things. But not only to know that he has invited us, but that he hears us, that he's a God who, who sees us and knows us and cares about our tears and our sadness. Mordecai is lamenting the destruction of God's people, God's chosen people. This is not only an injustice against image bearers, but particularly against God's purposes and plans for his people as well. And so we would recognize that it's good and right to lament things that are bad, that go against God's will, that end up hurting his people and his purposes of his kingdom. It is right and good to lament those things. Yet in Mordecai's lamenting, it does not ultimately lead him internally into self-despair, but it leads him to desperation and request, which is our second point. We see then that verse 4 sets the tone for how this section really unfolds in this dialogue. We've seen that there's the problem with he's not able to go into the king's palace, but with his clothing, but also that he's refused the clothing that would allow him to go in the king's palace. So he's not able to have this conversation with Esther face to face. So it happens with a mediator. So what we see in this section is that it can get, it can get a little repetitive, but it happens as the, the messenger is walking back and forth between Esther and him, relaying this information. And so that's how the unfolding of communication happens in this. In verse 6, we see that the eunuch who's been entrusted to Esther Hathik goes out to Mordecai in the open square in the city in the front of the king's gate. And so this is the setting of where this happens. Now this this was pretty interesting if we have any archaeology fans out there or maybe just amateur archaeologists like Indiana Jones fans level archaeologists. But they have actually excavated the city of Persia, and they found that this place was a place where there was lots of business and foot traffic. So really in the king's palace is kind of like a city square where there's lots of activity happening. And so in the midst of all this business and people passing through, we're able to see this is a busy section of the city, and this is how they're able to have almost a private conversation with everyone else moving around them. So that's, that's kind of just the scene and setting that would happen. Now let's focus on the the request that Mordecai makes. We see in... I'm sorry. I keep saying I see, and I intentionally, and I practiced this week to cut that out because I listen to sermons and I recognize how much I say we see. So please, please bear with me. A, verse 7 highlights Mordecai's uh, knack for intellect, that he's able to gather information quickly and profoundly. We see that he... We see it is. He's he's understood the exact sum of money. This is not just kind of a, a minor detail, but this is this is very specific. He has very good intel on how he's understood the exact sum of money that Haman promised to people. So he he's very much in the loop of all these things. But perhaps what's more striking is that he also has gained a copy of the decree as well. He has the physical copy of the destruction of what is inevitably going to happen in 12 months. For the kids and the younger people here today, we might say that he has the receipts. He's kept all the things. He has proof and documentation of these things. And so really what this what this decree, having a physical copy of it, does is it allows him to show Esther not only the, the gravity of the situation, but the details of the situation as well. You see, it's not just word of mouth, but she's able to read this and look at this, and I think this is a way that he's trying to show her the true danger that her and all of God's people are in. She's able to read this and recognize that this is not a joke. And so recognizing the weight, the gravity of the situation, Mordecai pleads with her Saying you're in a position of influence, go in and, and beg to the king, plead on our behalf. We are we're on the brink of annihilation, and we have twelve months. You need to go in and intercede on our behalf. And yet we see that in the response that Esther gives, we see that there are two problems to the plan that Mordecai has proposed. One one of them is a Persian custom a Persian law that's put forth, but then there's also a subjective problem in the relationship between Esther and Artaxerxes as well. The first problem is that Esther warns him that you cannot go into the king's court uninvited. She can't just walk in there and waltz in there. It's not as if we go into another room and knock on the door and they say, come in, and we walk in. There's, it's not the custom of the Persian palace to be able to do that. The, it's so severe that if someone did that, if they were not summoned, that it was a death penalty. This is really, Mordecai is asking her to go out on a limb and risk her life for the sake of her people. That's how serious this situation is. But as we think about, Esther's saying this, I think it's easy to be sympathetic to her position that she's hesitant about this, not only in the fact that she's risking her life, but the person that she's dealing with as well. Chapter one, and most of the book, presents Artaxerxes as very short-tempered and, and angry and whimsical in the way that he deals with a lot of things. He She has very little reason to think that even though she's not breaking the law, that if she was to do so, that it would be met with success, that it would be met with patience and understanding by this king. The person she's dealing with does not have a good track record for having a listening ear to his people. But not only that, we also see that there is embedded in this verse that there is revealed a little bit of tension between Esther and the king and their personal relationship. Look Look at the end of verse 11. Esther says, but for me, I have not been called to come into the king in these 30 days. So even though she's living in the same palace, she's living in the same place as him, she has not had contact with the king in 30 days. Commentators have a variety of reasons why this might be, and we want to be careful not to speculate about why this has happened. But I think reading this in the best light, we can read this as a neutral statement. This certainly doesn't contribute hope to the plan that Mordecai has put forth, we have seen that for whatever reason, there's been some kind of falling out or disfavor between Esther and the king. And so this makes her even more hesitant to want to go in and do this thing. Even though it's against the law, she's already saying, I don't have good standing already and this doesn't bode well for me in the end. And yet because the circumstances are so drastic and so dire, Mordecai continues to persist in his request to Esther He replies to Esther, and we'll look at this, and it looks, the first part's almost like a threat, but I think it's helpful if we read 13 and 14 together. We see that this is not just only a threat, but that Mordecai also has a great statement of faith and trust. He tells her at first, do not think to yourself that you are in the king, because you are in the king's palace, that you will escape more than all the other Jews. I think we can read this as a light threat, but really what, really what I think is going on here is that he's trying to motivate her to action. He's showing her that just because you're in a position of power and favor with the king as the queen of this earth, that you are ultimately God's servant, that you have been brought into this position because you need to step up in this time. You've been put into the favor of being the queen for this time. But we also see that Mordecai emphasizes the trust he has in the Lord. He goes on and says, for if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. There have been some that thought that in in, in Greek and Hebrew that another place could be an implicit reference to God. And so commentators will take it as that this is a direct appeal that God will arise and directly intervene and save the people who are on the brink of destruction. But the other option would be that that God's going to work through means of another human, human army, that there's still 12 months until this destruction would happen. And in that time, Mordecai is confident that God will raise up another army that will protect God's people. Regardless of how we read this, I think this is a great statement of, of trust and faith, that even if it's God directly intervening or through his means, that Mordecai is trusting that God will be faithful to his people and to his promises. What we also see we also see the faith and trust in God's providence as well in the end of 14. And Mordecai says, and, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Stephen Charnock, the 17th century English theologian and pastor, wrote on providence that providence is God's lantern in many affairs. If we do not follow it close, we may be left in the dark and lose our way. In Mordecai, we see that everything that's happened in this book that doesn't mention God's name directly, that this book has God's fingerprint of providence throughout the book over and over again. And Mordecai is seeing all the things that have led up to this point in God's providence and trusting and faith in that, that that has been for a reason. He's seeing that it was in God's providence that the queen was removed from her throne and that in God's providence that Esther was the one who was chosen as queen. And as a Jew who is a queen in this position of power, it's also in God's providence that this decree has gone forth. And now Esther is in this place to be able to be of influence, to be able to intercede for her people because she is both the queen and one of God's servants as well. Mordecai is looking and trusting in God's providence that has been this lamp guiding them to this point. And such a strong... Such a strong statement of looking at God's providence is, is almost undeniable to Esther that she so much so doesn't lead to pushing back anymore, but leads to a response, which is our final point. She goes. She goes Esther goes to Morde, sends, the, sends the messenger to Mordecai and says, Go and gives instructions to gather the Jews and to have them fast on our behalf three days and three nights. And it's not directly mentioned that they're praying, but I think it's very likely to assume that in their fasting that they're praying for God's favor, not only to be upon them as God's people for deliverance, but also for God's favor to be upon Esther, that she would receive favor in the eyes of the king as they move forward with this plan. And so we see a great a great act of faith and trusting and asking for prayer and praying herself for what she's about to do, but we also see a great act of courage by Esther as well at the end of verse sixteen. She says, "I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish." This is a remarkable act of courage and resolve that even in the face of death, even in the face of doing something illegal, that she knows that it is for a greater end, that though it is difficult and wrought with t- trials and difficulties. That if she intercedes and it goes well, that it will be for the preservation of God's people. And so Esther continues, despite having the threat of death, with firmness of courage moving forward. This is for this is for everyone in the room, but I specifically want to talk to the kids here mostly as we think about the need for courage in the Christian life as well. Many of us grew up hearing or perhaps heard at some point in our life that the, the right thing to do is often the very hard thing to do. And this is true because so often, even when we do the right thing, that it's not meant with joy and acceptance that people will come and pat us on the back and say, thank you for doing the right thing. Thank you for being a man a, or a woman of integrity and courage and honesty and doing these things. So rarely that happens. Don't expect that that will happen when you do the right things, kids. Oftentimes, it's met with with even anger from our neighbors. It might be as simple as it might be as simple as being in a group of friends and asking them not to lie or to speak ill of someone, or just being honest in your schoolwork or in your workplace or different things. And despite the negative reaction that that doing the right thing and having courage in hard circumstances evokes, it doesn't deter our duty to do the right thing. Because ultimately, like Esther, it does not matter how it is received, but it matters that we do the right thing before our God, that we know that God knows and sees all things. And when we do the right thing, and even when it's met with opposition and, and even hatred in some cases, that God is glorified in those things and that's ultimately what matters about our resolve to do the right thing esther has long been one of my favorite books of the bible i was always fascinated with the historical reality of the book but also how even though god's name is not mentioned directly in the book that it's it's a testament to god's god's providence and care for his people in all circumstances many commentators have have pointed out the different or not the difference the parallels between Joseph and Esther that they are both people living in foreign lands as pilgrims in foreign lands and they're both people who rise to political prominence in a place of power and influence and authority And both of them are used in different ways for the preservation of God's people. In Joseph's case, he's stored up and been wise about the food planning. And in God's providence, he's able to give food to his people who are living in a famished land. But similarly with Esther, she's also put into a position of prominence and authority that she might go and intercede for God's people, that they might not be destroyed and annihilated. Esther and Joseph, I love both of these stories and they're magnificent stories of God's providence and care for his people. But both of these people as intercessors and preservers of God people are ultimately to the to the great intercessor of Christ Jesus who is to come. We see that we also, like the Jewish people, needed a mediator, needed someone to intercede for us we were by nature children of wrath we were enemies of god we were dead in our transgressions we desperately needed a mediator there was a rift in our relationship between the most holy god and us because of our sin the westminster shorter catechism says that every sin deserves both in this life and the life to come the wrath and displeasure of god it is no it is no small thing to sin against the most holy god and it is not, though we needed a mediator, it is not something that we could do on our own. It's not something by effort of our own righteousness or the works of our hands that we could mend this bridge, this, this gap between us and God. But we desperately needed a mediator to come forth to intercede for us, lest we also perish. The difference in this story is that we did not desire that. We were content to stay dead in our transgressions and sins. And yet out of the abundance of his grace and his love and mercy and patience, though we were on the path to perish, God sent forth the greater intercessor, Christ Jesus, to live the life that we could never live, but also to die the death that we deserve at the cross, becoming a curse for us, bearing the, the, the guilt of our sin and the wrath that our sins justly deserve in order that he might reconcile us to God, that he might bring us close to assure the forgiveness of sins and to give us his righteousness. But we also see that he doesn't doesn't stop his his intercession there. We know that Christ has conquered over sin and death and rose again from the grave, and he continues to intercede for his people at the right hand of the Father. We see how he accomplishes this ministry and one, one theologian wrote this greatly. as how he, how he continues to intercede for his people is that he sits at the right hand of the Father as our advocate and representative, constantly testifying to the verdict won by his death and resurrection. Dear saints, we have a wonderful high priest who interceded for us in his life, death, resurrection and continues to intercede for us in our ascension that even when we sin even when we fall short we can confidently go to God in repentance knowing that God will cover those things in the righteousness of his son if we cast ourselves on that hope in his righteousness alone his life death resurrection and obedience we can always have confidence that we are in God's favor if we are in Christ that we are fully accepted before him Not because of our righteousness, but because of what our great high priest has accomplished and everything that he has done. It is hard to live as pilgrims in a fallen and broken world and even in our cities and world that is hostile to Christianity. Perhaps one of the hardest things about the book of Esther is that we rightly, in some ways, identify with being similar to the Christians, that we are those who are sojourners. We're living in a city foreign from our home. We're not yet home. And yet, as we toil under the hatred of our enemies, the destructiveness of the city and the world that we live in, we're reminded that we can do this with hope, that we can walk forth with courage and comfort because we belong to Christ Jesus who gave, we belong to our faithful God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave his only son that we might not perish, that we might have eternal life. And there will be a day where we will be brought forth face to face with our great high priest and he will welcome us into his presence. We will be made perfect in righteousness and holiness. And our great high priest who has been with us in our sufferings and our toiling and our lamenting in this life over all things will personally wipe away the tears from our eyes. That is our hope, dear saints. And as we walk forth as sojourners and pilgrims, would we keep our our eyes fixed on where our life is hidden with Christ on high? Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your Word that if you if you had not, we would walk around in, in darkness, but your your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto a light unto our path, and you you guide us, you encourage us, you convict us, you strengthen us by your word and lord we 're so thankful for the way that you have dealt with us, that you have not treated us as our sins deserve, but on an abundance of your love and compassion that you sent forth your Son, Christ Jesus, who who interceded for us in his life and death, but also in his his resurrection and ascension as well, that he continues to testify the truth of the reality of the victory that he has won for his people. Would that always be our, our comfort, Lord, that you are our advocate in heaven, and that we have no need to justify ourselves, but to just solely fall on your righteousness, to cling to your righteousness alone. Lord, we are afflicted so many in so many ways with the reality of living in a broken world and living in hostility, of living in Persia as it was, Lord. And we pray that you would give us strength, strengthening in our faith, but also encourage to walk forth knowing that we are your servants and that Whatever happens to us here, Lord, that we belong to you, our faithful Savior, body and soul. We pray and give thanks for all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.